Skeptics have always sought to undermine the Holy Scriptures by pointing to alleged discrepancies in the biblical text. Seeming contradictions in the Bible have been highlighted repeatedly through the ages. One such instance is that of the various accounts given of the visit of the women to the tomb of Jesus. You'll note what we just read in Matthew 28 as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week. In John's Gospel, in the chapter 20, from verse 1, the Bible says, The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark, unto the sepulchre, and saith the stone taken away from the sepulchre. In Mark's rendering, Mark chapter 16 that we read earlier, the Bible says in verse 2, And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came unto the sepulchre at the rising of the sun. Now, in John 20 verse 1, we should understand that the reference there literally means before all the darkness had disappeared. It was a little bit like twilight. But if you compare the words of Mark 16 verse 2, there is an apparent discrepancy. But it is only apparent. You might say, what's the solution to this? What is the right way of looking at this? Well, it's very simple. It had only begun to dawn when they left their homes in the city Yet having some distance to walk before reaching the tomb, and twilight in that part of the world being then but short, they didn't reach the grave until sunrise. Therefore, one set of statements is referring to the time of their leaving home, and the other is referring to their time of arrival at the tomb. It's simple. That's the solution. And those who want to poke holes in the biblical narrative will always do so. And even such an explanation as I have given will not satisfy them. But that's the answer. But all the skepticism of the day will not change the fact that there is actually an explanation for every supposed problem with the biblical text. The Bible is God's perfect word without error or contradiction. And as we noted in an earlier message, at the tomb there was an angel, actually there were two if you study one of the other evangelists, but Mark hones in on the one angel who gave to the women at the tomb the first announcement of the fact that the Lord was risen from the dead according to his promise. Now I realize that this is not necessarily all that relevant to the event itself. But just as an aside, is it not interesting to note that the Bible identifies this angel as a young man? In verse number 5 of Mark 16. Entering into the sepulchre, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a long white garment. He was an angel, but he appeared as a young man. I wouldn't be dogmatic about this, but I have read 
where some commentators believe that in glory all of us will look young. We're not going to look old and haggard and worn down. We'll all have that which some have called eternal youth. That's a thought. There's some reason why the Holy Spirit has seen fit to tell us that it was a young man clothed in a long white garment. That certainly fits in with the picture that we're given in the book of Revelation, even of the saints of God who are dressed in white. And white is that which speaks of purity, that which speaks of holiness and cleanness. Wonderful thought. But the angel gave to the women the first announcement of the fact that the Lord was risen from the dead as he had promised. It is recorded in John Masefield's drama, The Trial of Jesus, a striking passage in which the Roman centurion, who was commanding the soldiers who crucified the Lord Jesus at Calvary, returned to Pilate to hand in his report of the day's work. After the report is given, Pilate's wife is seen to beckon to the centurion and beg him to tell how the prisoner died. When the story has been told, she suddenly asks the question, Do you think he is dead? To which the centurion replied, No, lady, I don't. Then where is he? She said. To which he replied, Let loose in the world, lady, where no one can stop his truth. Let loose in the world where no one can stop his truth. And this is so. The gospel of the resurrection is an indisputable fact. And it is an irresistible force. There are two great elements in the statement made by the angel to the women here. And in the other portions that are given in Matthew and in John. Two great elements in that statement that I want to examine with you today. As we look at the doctrine of the resurrection. He is risen as he said. Let's look first at this. The implications of the evidence referenced at the tomb. The implications of the evidence referenced at the tomb. And what is that evidence that was referenced by the angel? Verse 6. He saith unto them, Be not affrighted, or don't be afraid like you are. Ye seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. And is it not interesting? When you go back to the last verse of chapter 15, that the Holy Spirit records, And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, beheld where he was laid. They saw the place where he had been laid. They actually saw his body laid there. Now they're back. They're at the tomb. And the angel says, Look, behold the place where they laid him. You saw him there when he first was laid there just a while ago. But look now. He's not there. The angel states this to the women 
precisely as it is presented to the world at large, he announces a fact. Here is the testimony. The testimony to a risen Savior. He announces the fact. He is risen. And then he gives the only rational explanation that can be given of the fact. What is the fact? He is not here. What is the explanation? He is risen. That's the only explanation that can be rationally given here about that fact. The fact is the sepulchre was vacant. It was empty. There was no body in there. What was the explanation? What was the testimony of the angel? Christ has risen from the dead. And we spoke of this in a previous message. The undoubted fact is that the sepulchre was empty on the third day. Come see the place where the Lord lay. Where his body used to be. And this concurs with the words in Matthew. Because the Bible tells us there. That the angel said, verse 6 of Matthew 28, He is not here, for he is risen as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. And you go to John chapter 20. It's the same thing. You notice there that when they came, Joseph Sorry, John and and Peter. It says in verse 4 of John 20, they ran both together and the other disciple did outrun Peter, because he was much younger, and came first to the sepulchre. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying. Remember, that's how he was wrapped by Joseph of Arimathea. We read that in Mark's Gospel. He was wrapped in linen clothes. There were those linen grave clothes lying. Yet went he not in. Then come a Simon Peter following him and went into the sepulchres. No hesitation on Peter's part. Straight in. Typical Peter. I'm going in to look. And seeth the linen clothes lie and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. What does that mean? It's not that the linen cloth had been taken off and then dropped on top of the other clothes It was in the same shape as it had been if a body had been in there. That's what it means. So when he looked, he saw what looked like a mummified remains, except there was nothing in there. It was flat clothing. The head and the rest of the clothing all together. And Peter looked at that. And the other disciple did as well, because John 20 verse 8 says, Then went in also that other disciple which came first to the sepulchre, notice this, and he saw and believed. He saw what? He saw the evidence that Christ was no longer there. His body had been there. That dead body had been placed there on what we call Good Friday evening, and the grave was guarded by a watch of Roman soldiers. This was undeniable. But it was equally undeniable that the body was now gone. And if it had not been, as I pointed out previously, the body could have been produced and Christianity would have been crushed in the bud. The testimony, he is not here, he is risen. 
Then there's the theory. And we mentioned a little bit about this before. The body is gone, obviously. So then how was it removed? Only two explanations were ever offered that are worthy of consideration. One is that of the Pharisees, that the disciples stole it away while the guard slept. And that's incredible, and it is absurd. Because the penalty for sleeping on watch to a Roman soldier was instant death. And when the watch was not protracted, it was only for a couple of nights, it would have been unlikely that even one guard would fall asleep, but certainly incredible that the whole lot of them would sleep. And sleep so soundly that the, the stone could be removed, and the body carried away, and them not waken up. Moreover, if they were asleep, how would they know what became of the body? If they were sleeping, how did they know it was taken away and by whom? But still more incredible is it to think that these frightened, cowardly disciples should make such a daring and dangerous attempt to remove the body of Jesus as to put their lives in instant danger. And of course it was bright moonlight at that time of the year when such an effort would have been particularly hazardous, even by the most courageous men, which they were not. It's inconceivable that men who were so defeated and discouraged as they were, that they would try such a thing. I mean, think about it. They didn't even believe that he was risen from the dead. So why would they feel that they had to secure that resurrection by stealing his body away to try to prove something that they didn't believe in? The whole thing is preposterous. What was the motive for doing so? Because if Christ had not risen, he had deceived them all. And he had left them to the scorn and hatred of their own nation. So there was no motive to induce these disciples to attempt to fulfill a prediction that they didn't believe and to secure an event which they didn't even expect. No, that's a preposterous explanation. It's absurd. It's incredible. But from the testimony that he's risen and the theory concerning that removal of the body to the truth. And what is the truth? The only other explanation is that presented by the angel in his announcement to the women and by them to the disciples and by the disciples to us. And that is that he rose from the dead according to his promise. He said he would do it and he did it. And of course this is what it says here in the scripture. That they believed then the word that the Lord had spoken. In John chapter number 2, when the Lord talked about destroying the temple and raising it up, and that was misconstrued by the Jews who thought he was talking about the actual temple, but he spoke of the temple of his body. Here's what the Bible says in John 2 verse 22. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now that was eventually they believed it. At the start they didn't. At the beginning they were skeptical. 
But the recording witnesses of this fact, the angels, and then the disciples, they state that they saw the Lord, they heard him, they touched him, and they had every possible proof that the body that was before them was the same that had died on the cross. You study your Bible, there are at least ten interviews with the Lord recorded, not by night only, but in broad daylight. Paul talks of it in 1 Corinthians 15. And he mentions an event in which 500 people were present. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He, of course, here is speaking very clearly of what happened at the resurrection. And he says, verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 15, I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen of Cephas. That, of course, is another name for Peter. It means a stone. Then He was seen of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me also as of one born out of due time. So, the apostle Paul saw him. He saw the risen Christ on the road to Damascus the day that he was converted. I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. Here's the truth. And to attest to this truth, these disciples suffered every kind of loss and torture and calumny and even death itself. What would be their motive to maintain a falsehood from this life where its only reward would be suffering? And they would have no reward in the life to come because the Bible says all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire. No, their testimony was true. Their testimony was true. Now, the fact that all the Jews did not believe this testimony doesn't actually weaken its truth. It has been pointed out that it, it actually strengthens it because had they all believed it automatically, that belief might have been ascribed to their credulous desire for a Messiah that made them dupes of a story that fell in with their wishes and desires. A story that would not be sifted and examined as it should have been. There would not have been any cross-questioning of skepticism. But the fact that so many refused to admit it proves that the evidence connected with the resurrection was examined with the utmost keenness. And the fact that so many believed it automatically on the spot and died for that belief shows that the evidence for it was unanswerable. Don't you think if there had been some way to disprove the resurrection of Christ or to explain away the testimony of the hundreds of people who affirmed that it was true, that those particular objections would be listed and given? But we don't see that. The resurrection of Christ is established by the evidence. Evidence that is irresistible. 
And as one great writer said, we accept the resurrection of Christ as established by evidence so irresistible that the laws of human action and the foundations of human history must all be destroyed before we can suppose this evidence to be inconclusive or fallacious. Hence, the fact announced by the angel is true. The Lord is risen. So here we have, here we have the implications of the evidence referenced at the tomb. But there's a second point I want to make, and it is the importance of the event realized at the tomb. The importance of the event realized at the tomb. You can see that the importance of the resurrection of Christ is intimated by the urgency with which these women were sent by the angel to declare it. Go quickly. There's a great urgency here behind this command. Go quickly. Do this right away. Go your way. And the Bible says they went out quickly. Mark 16, verse number 8. But when you go back to Matthew 28, that's because it says there, in verses 6 and 7, He is not here, for He is risen, as He said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. Quickly, hurry up, go and tell them that this has happened. It's so important that you do this. I've told you. And notice the divine title that's given to Christ by the angel, the Lord. He speaks of him as the Lord. Come see the place where the Lord lay come see the place where the Lord lay he is the Lord and the importance of the event realized at the tomb the resurrection of Christ causes us to think of the claims of Christ that were verified by it Christ's claims were verified by his resurrection. In other words, the, the great importance of the resurrection of Jesus is in the fact that it proves him to be the Christ and the Savior of the world. This is so important and it is re presented repeatedly in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 15:17. If Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, you're yet in your sins. That's how important it is. The word of faith which we preach, Paul talked about in Romans 10 verses 8 and 9, is that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that what? That God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. So important. The apostles were actually ordained as an extraordinary body of men to be witnesses of the fact. Did you notice that ever in Acts chapter 1? You know, it's always good to think about the Scripture, how it is written, rather than how we would have written it. If you go to Acts chapter 1, and you see there that there's going to be a choice of someone to fill the apostolic vacancy. Judas has committed suicide. He's no longer part of the apostolic band. There's a vacancy. There's a spot empty. 
Instead of 11, they wanted to have 12. So the Lord established this. Here's what it says. Acts chapter 1. Verse 20, he quotes from the Psalms. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his habitation be desolate, let no man dwell therein, and his bishopric let another take. That's the position that Judas held was to be filled by someone else. Now look, wherefore, of these men which have company with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John unto that same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of what? Of his resurrection. Now I would say to you that most Christians, if they were asked to write that, if they didn't know what the Holy Spirit had written, they would say, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his death? Must one be a witness with us of his crucifixion? But it's not. It is his resurrection. Of course, the fact is he couldn't be raised if he hadn't died. He couldn't be raised if he had not been on the cross. But notice how important this doctrine is. And not only that, these men who were to preach this doctrine, these apostles, to be witnesses of the resurrection, it was essential to the apostolic office that the one who bore that office should have seen the risen Redeemer. That was one of the qualifications of an apostle. And by the way, that's why there are no apostles today. No matter what some Pentecostalists will tell you and what the Church of Rome will tell you, they believe in apostolic succession. There's no such thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul speaks about this in the first part of the chapter. Am I not an apostle? Well, of course, the answer to that is yes. Am I not free? Yes. Have I not seen Jesus Christ, our Lord? Are not ye my work in the Lord? Paul is hinting at the fact that in order to be an apostle, you had to have seen Christ in the flesh. Now, the reason for this fundamental position given to the fact of the resurrection is clear. Our Lord based his whole claim to be the Messiah on this issue. The aforementioned verse in John chapter 2 verse 19 declares it. He said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. It was a challenge to rest the whole question of his Messiahship on his resurrection from the dead. If he had not risen from the dead, his claim to be the Messiah would have been destroyed. So it's so important. Christ claims, of which there were many, but the chief one was that he was the Messiah. Those claims were verified by the event, by the resurrection. Furthermore, we can say, Christ's cross work was vindicated by the resurrection. How so? Well, the resurrection was the only fact that could authenticate the claim that he made to be the saviour of the world. He declared himself to be the great sacrifice for sin and the redeemer who had opened up the way from man the sinner to God the sovereign. 
How would we know that the sacrifice that Jesus made was accepted? How would we know that the way was made open by his death for us? How are we going to know that he who died on the cross did not actually die as all others died just for his own sins? Because that's the conclusion we would reach if he had not risen. And how are we going to know that the Lord will carry us through this dark world and present us faultless before the throne on the ground of his atoning work? How do we know that we're saved by the blood of Christ because he's risen from the dead? He has returned from the, from the presence of the judge, as it were, assuring us that the debt of sin is cancelled, it's paid. By his returning from behind the veil in the holiest of all, assuring us that the sacrifice is accepted, we know that he is the saviour of the world. I was considering this wonderful truth the other day, and it warmed my own soul, even as I was teaching it to the seminary students. If you read Leviticus chapter 16, along with Hebrews chapters 8, 9, and 10, you'll see that especially in chapter 10, it is a commentary on what happened on the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, the priest would wear those beautiful garments, the blue and the white and the mitre, all those wonderful colors that were in the ephod, the stones that were there, the twelve colored stones representing the children of Israel, representing the Lord having us upon his heart, the stones on the shoulders. When he would go into the holy place, that's the first part, the first section of the tabernacle. Before he would take the blood of the goat inside the veil, he would take off those beautiful holy garments. On those holy garments on the hem, there was a succession of bells and pomegranates. A bell, a pomegranate, a bell, a pomegranate. So that when the priest would be moving around in the holy place doing his work, you would hear the ringing of the bells all the time. But before he would take the blood inside the veil to the mercy seat to sprinkle it there, he would take off those holy garments, lay them aside... And just in the simple linen undergarments, as it were, the garments that did not cause sweat, which speaks of sin, he went inside the veil with the blood and sprinkled it seven times before the mercy seat and upon the mercy seat. And once he did that, having gone into the holy place with the blood, he would come back out from the holy of holies into the holy place, when he would then put on again those holy garments for glory and for beauty. The whole while he had been in there at the mercy seat, there was silence. But now when he comes back out into the holy place, he puts those beautiful garments on again and he starts moving about and there's sound of the ringing of the bells again. You know, all of this is typical it speaks of our Lord Jesus going inside the Holy of Holies with his own blood, presenting it to his Father as the ground of our salvation. And there was a sense in which that was done in silence. If you think about the Lord there in those three hours of darkness upon the cross. But then there's the joyful sound 
of the bells ringing as he returns from that place. As it were, there's a picture when the Lord puts back on those holy garments of his resurrection and his ascension into heaven. See, when the Lord came down into this world, he, as it were, took off those holy garments. Those garments for glory and for beauty. He laid aside his glory that he might come and be our saviour. That he might atone for our sins upon the cross. But then he rose from the dead and he ascended up into heaven where he, he today sits in great glory reigning over his people and giving salvation to those who will come to him for it. The cross of Christ vindicates or is vindicated rather by the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection is of fundamental importance as a central fact of the gospel. The resurrection of Christ confirmed his claims to be a divine saviour. Again, Paul speaks of this in Romans 1 verse 4. He was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. It doesn't mean that the fact of the resurrection implied divinity because others had risen from the dead who were not divine. Nor does it mean that the resurrection constituted Christ the Son of God because he was that before he entered into the world. The angels being called to worship him according to Hebrews 1 verse 6 as he was brought into the world. But he was declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection since God in that way endorsed his claims to that effect during his life. By raising him from a death to which he had been condemned for making those claims. Think about that. They were calling him a blasphemer. The chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, they said, he's a blasphemer. Listen to his blasphemy. Away with him. The very claims that he made. Art thou a king? Thou sayest it. I'm the king of the Jews. Go ahead and write it. The claims that Jesus made would have all fallen to the ground if he had remained dead. They did not remain dead. God raised them from the dead. All those claims that he made to be the Son of God. When he talked about coming forth from the Father and then going back to the Father, all of that was heard by people. They knew what he said. The enemies knew what he had said. They hated him for it. They would have done away with him even earlier than they did if they could have because of the claims that he made. Who do you think you are? Who is this man? He's the son of Joseph, the carpenter. They didn't believe his claims. They didn't believe that he was the son of God. They didn't believe that he was the Messiah. But he proved, he proved his claims, and he proved that his cross work was for the purpose of saving men by his being raised from the dead. The resurrection proved him to have been God manifest in the flesh, the incarnate word. And there's one other thought here. The importance of the event realized at the tomb. Not only are Christ's claims verified by it, not only is Christ's cross work vindicated by it, 
but Christian doctrines are validated by it. Think about the great doctrines of the Christian system. If you study the types in the shadows of the Old Testament, they receive their full significance only from their connection with this great fact of the resurrection. We could look at the new life of Noah from the ark and the deluge. That's a type of the resurrection. We think of the wonderful offering and the deliverance of Isaac. It tells us in Hebrews 11 that his father received him, as it were, from the dead. It was a picture of resurrection. You think of the living bird in the purification of the leper. One bird was slain and the other bird was alive. It speaks of the resurrection. The day of atonement. There's the living goat. And there are other facts of the Old Testament that all receive their full illumination only by connecting them with the resurrection of our Lord. Christ is called by Paul the firstfruits. Afterward, them that are Christ at his resurrection. What is that, the firstfruits? Well, it was a feast among the Jews. And what would happen at the day when they had the feast of the firstfruits? On the morrow after the Sabbath, which you know the Sabbath in the Old Testament was the seventh day of the week, the morrow after the Sabbath was the first day of the week. What would happen then? The priest would take the first sheaf out of the harvest and wave it before the Lord. The waving of the first sheaf, Paul connects with the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can read it for yourself in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 23. But every man in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. Afterward they that are Christ at his coming. He's the first one raised. And all of those who are in Christ are raised after him. But why was that sheaf waved by the priest in the Old Testament on the morrow after the Sabbath? Because that's the Lord's day. That's the Lord's day. That's the day on which we worship. And there was a prefiguring and a foreshadowing of that. That's spoken of in Psalm 118. This is the day that the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. But we think about the doctrine of justification. Paul connects that with the resurrection. Romans chapter 8. We sang today a version of this in our opening paraphrase. It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It's Christ that died. Yea, rather that is risen again. Who is even, who, who also maketh intercession for us. And then you have this justifying righteousness spoken of as imputed to us. If we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses, it means because of our offenses, and raised again because of our justification. Romans 4, 24 and 25. We think about the doctrine of regeneration, it's typified by resurrection. Isn't that what happens when you're converted? You hath he quickened or made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. It's a, it's a resurrection that takes place when you as a sinner are brought to Christ. And what does it say of that? We're raised up together with Christ and made to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We learn from Ephesians chapter 1 verses 19 and 20. 
What is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe? According to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. In other words, the same power that brings you to life is the power that brought Christ to life in the resurrection. It's resurrection power that is put forth in regeneration. And we can even speak of sanctification. How is holiness of heart and life enjoined by the apostle? In what way does he exhort us to holiness? He appeals to the resurrection. Did you ever notice that? Colossians 3, 1 and 2. If it means since ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Paul's desire for himself and others was that they might know Christ and the power of his resurrection. That's sanctification, living for God in the power of the resurrection. And what is the comfort that we have in life and in death? Fear not, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Standing at the graveside of a loved one who died in Christ, the bereaved mourner can think of those words of 1 Thessalonians 4.14, If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus, will God bring with him? And I've often stood in the cemetery, even where my parents are buried, and I know probably three quarters of the people buried in that graveyard just estimating it I often think to myself where would I like to be when Jesus comes I think I'd like to be at that graveyard and I'd like to see all those saints of God rising from those graves in the same bodies in which they were put into those graves except those bodies are now fitted for glory eternal youth and then wait for my being taken up then because we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the, in the air to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. What a day that's going to be. You should think about it. You should consider it. You should meditate upon it. Because that's the future. That's what the Lord tells us in His Word. It's there for our comfort. That's what Paul said. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. When you're feeling down, when you're feeling a bit depressed, just stop and think of the day of resurrection. Jesus has risen from the dead and he said, because I live, ye shall live also. Guaranteed. What a tremendous thought this is. He's the first fruits. And afterward, they that are Christ at his coming. So I like to think of those that when they're buried, their bodies are precious dust. Now, some people say, well, it's just the old body. That's just the old, the old uh, casket in which you lived. That's, that's just the house that you lived in on this earth. But it's precious dust. Because that same body, the Lord will quicken and glorify and make, make, make ready for heaven. Someone wrote a wonderful little poem, Thoughts on Calvary. 
Outside an ancient city wall a rugged hill stands nigh, on which my Lord in love to me an atoning death did die. We see the throng from Pilate's hall to Calvary wend their way, and in their midst the Lamb of God to slaughter led that day. The place is reached, the ponderous cross is laid upon the ground. Into the wood his hands and feet by cruel spikes are bound. Uplifted now upon the cross, behold his lovely form, his visage marred, his blessed brow enclosed in crown of thorn. All hell's let loose against the Lord, and man his heart has shown, that he by nature is depraved and far from God has gone. And in this throng that now surrounds my dying Saviour's cross, myself I see, by nature vile, all sinful, helpless, lost. And now when men have done their worst, God hides him from their view, and whose blessed Son deals out what should have been my due. The flaming sword which long has slept, God bids it now awake to smite the man that was as he, thereby my peace to make. And there my sin's enormous load on him by God was laid, the debt which I could never meet by precious blood was paid. From such a sight the sun withdraws, Golgotha's rocks are rent, the wrath of God that was my due on Christ his Son is spent. Now every jot and tittle done, tis finished, Jesus cries, his spirit up to God he yields, he bows his head, he dies. By loving hands he's taken down and wrapped in linen white in Joseph's tomb, which then was new, my Lord's laid out of sight. The morning comes, so long foretold, when he should rise again, and conquer death, that awful foe, and spoil his dark domain. An angel down from heaven sent, now rolls away the stone. The Lord comes forth in majesty, his atoning work is done. Ascended now to God's right hand, the doors lift up their head. The Lord of glory enters in, who liveth and was dead. Before God's face my name he bears. I'm seen in all his worth. He's left me here, why should I fear? To tell his glories forth. And now I look for his return. He says, I quickly come. What will it be his face to see? And dwell with him at home. He is risen, as he said.